0: This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We
1: are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. Today we are talking to Tim Joseph, founder of the Maple Hill Creamery. It's a pioneer, 100% grass-fed dairy farm, and Maple Hill has been on the forefront of regenerative farming before it was even a thing. I'm very excited to talk about everything milk, regenerative ag, as well as the difficulties in making a product that is 100% grass-fed and finished. Let's dive in.
0: All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Today, we have Tim on the line, who's the founder of Maple Hill Creamery. Uh, Tim, how's it going? Good. Good. Thanks for having me. And Ryan, our lovely co-host. How are you doing, man?
1: Man, I'm so excited to talk about dairy. You have no idea. I'm stoked.
0: Yeah, this is our second uh, milk-themed episode in the past couple weeks, so it's, it's uh, always a fun topic. I think raw milk and milk has definitely become a hotter topic in the health space the past couple of years for good reason. So Tim, yeah, you're the founder of Maple Hill Creamery, which has, you know, done pretty well. And is one of the, you know, the high quality grass fed options I see at Whole Foods. And I'm curious, you know, how did you get into the dairy industry? Kind of what's the, you know, origin story of, of Maple Hill and how did you, you know, manage to get that to a pretty large scale? And, Let's, uh, you know, we can save some of the details and, and dive in. But yeah, what's, sure. uh, how did you get started in all this?
2: Well, uh, I'll try to make a long story kind of short, but um, I did not grow up as a, a farm background. I just I grew up in sort of a rural, um, rural uh, background, but not an active working farm. But for whatever reason, when I was a teenager, I had decided that I wanted to be a farmer. Um and so uh, i didn't obviously go straight into it um as a teenager. I did play around with a bunch of stuff chickens and all the usual usual things that people get into um but uh, so it was always in and out and i and my twenties my when I was in college, I got really interested in grass fed I was a subscriber to um there was a Rodale magazine way back called New Farm that was like 15 or 20 years before its time and just had all these crazy ideas and stockman grass farmer and i got in my head that like the shortest distance from the sun to um the product would theoretically be the way the best way to um be a farmer and so i i went to all these stockman grass farmer conferences the first one and Joel Salatin's farm before it was like a cool thing and eventually I was working on my wife and I started a restaurant got out of that um was went into this software company my friend had started and I was working eventually from home and uh, we were about to buy a house and we were like wow geez for the price of a house where we were living we could buy a farm and do this thing So we did, we bought a 250 acre farm in um, Little Falls, New York. It was a former dairy farm. Did not go into it thinking dairy, just got the farm. Um, And eventually realized, oh gosh, I gotta leave this corporate job. Um, It was always my mission was to like stop doing that. And there's a milk check you get every month. So I was like, well, milking cows, that seems to be the most plausible way to get cash coming into this thing. I didn't know anything about cropping. and it was a dairy farm, so we did that. I bought a herd of cows um, in 2003, and um, I was 30-some years old by then. I'd never milked a cow in my life until they showed up in the driveway, literally. Um, my wife, our son's um, kindergarten teacher showed my wife how to milk, um, but I'd never had time to go do it. And so the cows, 60 cows got off. The old owner of the farm came back, showed me how to milk, and we started milking. And we were conventional. Um by that I mean, you know, not organic. We fed grain, we did all the conventional things that everybody told us to do and really wasn't working after a while. First of all, we'd never done it before. We had too much debt. There it's there's so many ways to screw up in dairy and we did all of them. And um I had always had this grass fed thing stuck in my brain and so I'd always been trying to reduce the grain and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, but sort of the wisdom of ignorance, um, is what allowed us to go grass fed is like, cause that was not a thing. And that was 2007. We decided we had to go organic because we were going broke conventional needed a better milk price. We were so broke. We couldn't afford grain anyway, the organic grain during our, tr- it takes a year to transition cows. And so we're like, well, I guess we're going grass fed. And we went grass fed and organic at the same time, and that was like blasphemy. Um, you know, we're going to kill our cows. Blah blah blah. Uh, not very popular um, with the neighbors. They all thought we were nuts, which we were. Um, but we didn't know that you not. You can't milk can't milk cows without grass, without without grain. Um, and so. We shipped to Organic Valley for a couple of years, and then I was still working at corporate job, traveling to Atlanta, running a farm. It was just ridiculous. And I started um, renovating a former barbecue restaurant up the road from our farm. There was a kitchen and decided, all right, that's gonna be our micro creamery and bought a 30 gallon pasteurizer on our last open credit card. And, Got that thing licensed by the state of New York and started making yogurt 30 gallons at a time. Um, That was May 2nd, actually, of 2009, which I just realized was May 2nd yesterday. When I looked at the calendar, I was like, wow, it's been a long time. Um, And so we started direct, you know, selling locally, which really back then in upstate New York, that wasn't really a thing. There wasn't enough people that cared about it. Um, And, you know, eventually, delivered to co-ops, and one thing led to another, and then, you know, figured out a way to get it into New York City, and then figured out a way to get into a bigger distributor, and, and grew it out from there, Um, and, you know, to where it is today, with a lot of stuff in between, obviously, so I'll stop there, because that was a long, short story.
1: No, man, that's that's such a killer story. I love hearing it. And it's really interesting too, like having the mindset you had going into it. Like you knew in the back of your mind, like you always wanted to do something grass fed with it. And that, that's kind of the nuances I want to dive into because I'm just I'm just curious. I think our audience might be curious too. Sort of the process of developing like a normal, like normal grain fed dairy operation. What are the struggles that you had with that? And then what are even the bigger struggles with like you mentioned how everyone around you was saying taking them off grain is gonna be extremely detrimental. Could you explain maybe why that is and also how you did it to actually have a successful uh, operation? I think it would be interesting. Sure. I mean, the problem
2: we had, so we were a like 60 to 70 cow dairy um, in a dairy where you're feeding grain and sort of just doing the normal thing, which again is um, I, I always like to be really careful. Like I'm, everybody does what they do for a particular reason like nobody sets sets out to do anything they're doing particularly in agriculture because it's like oh yeah i want to wake up tomorrow and i'm going to go spread a bunch of uh, chemicals and glyphosate on my fields right it's not how it works one thing always leads to another and the unintended consequences and all things are relative to another so what we did this year we always want to make it better next year and there's always some guy in your yard with some new product that they're selling, which is the solution to your current problem, right, and one thing leads to another, and then fifty years later, you wake up and and here's dairy right um and but like I had never done it before, so I had no sense of what normal was um and like it just felt not normal that out of you know sixty cows, there was always this sort of chronic underlying. Problem with some material percentage of them, you know, ten or fifteen of them, and so much so that it's sort of part of dairy is you have a vet on, sort of your your named vet, and they do a herd health visit every month, which sounds great and nice. A herd health visit, that's good, but really a herd health visit is a herd sick visit, right? Like there's always some low level very similar to human health low level issues whether metabolic hoof issues are like the number one issue for cows leaving you know most herds is hoof and leg issues lameness um you know uh issues with their rumen things like that um and so you're always sort of doctoring them in some way and that just felt like off to me um and wasn't pleasing and I had this hunch that um, it, the more grain we could get out of the system, the healthier the cows would be. And that hunch was absolutely correct. Like within a year of, um, of getting off corn silage and corn and other starchy type grains, you know, the first thing, the, the biggest thing I remember is like a, another normal thing in dairies, you have a hoof trimmer come. You know, he comes maybe twice a year to trim back all the cattle's hooves. And he came in one day and he's like, you know, I love your business. I love coming to see you guys, but um, you don't need me anymore. And your cow's hooves are so hard now, I can barely cut them. And what had happened is that that starch and the grain and the diet Causes a lot of softness in the most tender area, most important area for a cow in a modern dairy stepping on concrete was their hooves and it was just one thing and but over time, you know once our herd kind of turned over, there's some cattle that are just not gonna work in a grass fed dairy um and you know you call them or they have a career path change into into dairy beef um and eventually it starts to click. And you end up with truly herd health, and you don't see the vet. Um, And that's sort of the trajectory. Now, we did it at a time where there was like literally no support for what we were doing. If you called a vet, they came in with the idea that you were sort of bad and not doing the right thing. And that still exists today. That exists between conventional and organic in veterinary medicine and all sorts of other things. Um, But it's come a long enough way and there's a big enough market now that it is become normal. But back then it was just basically us and other farmers that had joined us at Maple Hill. That was like our little network. And we turned inward to try to improve the system our own way. Didn't really have a vet. Nobody wanted to deal with us. And um, I don't know if I would describe what we went through as successful as a farm, it was absolutely not successful. Like in the end, like we had started Maple Hill really with the idea of kind of saving our farm that we had, you know, put together. Um, And just financially like the act of running two things, a farm and a creamery and trying to stay above water financially in both uh, eventually became impossible. And so You know, we kind of had to switch horses for a number of reasons. One, we had moved to a bigger facility that was two hours away. You can barely run a farm while you live on it. You definitely can't run a farm remotely. Um, And so we basically had to sell everything on the farm and went through a total financial (laughs) nightmare debacle. Um, But in the end, like, like after having gone through all that, we certainly did know like what worked and what didn't, what not to do and have like continued to refine that within the Maple Hill Network and even more broadly outside of it. Tons of people sort of it's a very collaborative um, sort of normal culture in grass fed and even in or- organic. All agriculture is very collaborative, but we had to be in grass fed and like getting those best practices out there and what to do to be successful is baked into the culture of grass fed production because everything is so different. It's not a recipe, which is why it's so different, right? Big dairy, modern dairy is what it is because the whole purpose of sort of the infrastructure, the what they look like is to create a homogeneous environment for cattle to produce milk in, right? And take the variables out, keep them cool, keep them comfortable, nutrition, this and that. That is like the polar opposite of what grass fed is. Like there is no perfect day well, maybe one or two on a grass-fed farm. And so you're constantly adjusting for those. It's a very non-linear system. Um, And so collaboration is key. And it's the hardest way to make milk, like bar none, no ifs, ands, or buts, it's brutal.
0: Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN10 T-R-I-S-T-A-N, for 10% off your first order. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's fascinating. I want to kind of get into the the details because I think people here, grass-fed, grain-fed, they might know more from the beef side of things where I think it's a little bit more clear. And, you know, my understanding and the general understanding is probably that even grain-fed beef cattle are spending some time in pasture. And it's really the finishing process in the feedlot. That's the big difference, right? So it's kind of like really... 100% grass fed versus grain finished. But in dairy, this is completely different. So I want to ask you first, is grain fed or traditional conventional dairy, is it 100% grain fed? And then, you know, as you transition to grass fed, you know, what does that look like in terms of like a split percentages? Are they out on pasture and then you're bringing them in? And is that where, you know, the logistical piece is so challenging because I think it is. And, you know, how do you go about doing that? Because as you can imagine, anyone who would want to work with dairy cows, if you were, want to really pasture raise them, they're out into the pasture, but you have to milk them, I, I mean, once or twice a day. I don't twice, know doing, Usually twice, doing. yeah. Yeah, twice, yeah. So morning and, and evening. So then you have to go get them. And, yeah, you can imagine how challenging that is. So I'm curious if you could just shed some light there. Sure. So interesting and ironically, so most people –
2: when I went into this, I had to, my hypothesis was that, oh, grass-fed beef paved the way for grass-fed dairy. So that seems like a good little niche for me who wanted to be like this regional, maybe it in New York City, grass-fed thing. And like, I was so wrong, like still today, nobody actually knows what grass-fed is. Like we have research, it's like, it's the... The people that are there's always a subset of people that are educated people eating your listeners would be among those but the population at large is that they have no idea what it means and and worse so in beef there is really it's it's a wild west like even things that say grass-fed very often have grain running through them right and so it was actually the opposite in my opinion just observation is that when dairy became a thing the grass-fed dairy became a thing it actually created the tailwinds for beef because the nature of dairy is as a consumer you just think about your what you would call your purchase interval people purchase beef uh, much less frequently than they do dairy You're, you're at the dairy case because it goes bad you eat more of it buying multiple yogurts, uh, milk, you know, once a week, a family, my family buy, you know, four half gallons a week, right? And so when you see grass-fed there, you see it more often. And the other cool thing about dairy is there was no baggage. Like beef has a ton of grass-fed baggage from many years of what it means, who who says what it means. Um, We were pretty clean in dairy. And so when we set out, one of the things we did because there were still a lot of cheaters is helped create certifications in dairy. And so if you go to a supermarket today and you buy one of the major brands, Maple Hill, Horizon, Organic Valley, we all have like uh, Horizon uses AGA, Maple Hill uses OPT. I literally just got off an OPT call talking about standards and, and all of that. And we have a seal and we are certified under the same, sort of framework as our organic certification so that the consumer can know there is no grain in the system so in a normal conventional or organic grain fed dairy it's not 100% grain you'd literally kill the cow like very quickly um it's probably 30% um grain maximum right and sometimes there's corn silage in there sometimes there's hay there's hay but it's a mix, um, and um, but the grain, it's a concentrate. That's It's called a concentrate in dairy because it packs a lot of punch in a small package, right? So I might, you know, a cow eats 3.2% of its body mass every day, so a 1,000 pounds cow, 1,200 pound cow, or let's say a 1,000 eats 32 pounds. I might feed eight pounds of grain and the rest of it is forage. So it's not a lot of grain, but it changes the rumen balance because of the starch in the grain and other things, and that's what sort of creates the cascade of issues from a health standpoint. So in a grass-fed, particularly certified grass-fed dairy, and culturally grass-fed in dairy means no grain ever for the life of the animal, once that dairy has decided to be grass-fed. They can transition their cattle that may have fed, been fed grain in the past, but now are not for you know, a certain period of time. Now it's a grass-fed herd, all new animals that are born there never see grain, done. Beef, the front end of beef is always grass-fed. So cow-calf, which is where the calves come from, all the way up generally through feeding. Sometimes there's some grain early on, but generally, mostly for an economic reasons, nobody can afford to feed grain to a beef animal while it's growing uh, you know, through that stage to get to finishing. Finishing is where the grain happens, and it happens in a much bigger way in, say, a feedlot situation in beef at that point than it ever does in dairy. Because the sad fact is, like, they only need to keep that animal alive for a certain period of time while it's getting fat. If they kept feeding it that way, you know, like basically all corn silage or a very high grain diet, it will die like basically it has acid reflux, like beyond comprehension um, and they're basically burning out from the inside. So that's where the problems come. A grass-fed beef, true grass-fed beef is, it it just is finished 100% on grass. So grass-fed, grass-finished is often used and that is true grass-fed. No grain in the ration whatsoever and it usually takes longer um and there's a lot more skill involved that's the thing about feeding in a feedlot it doesn't take skill it just takes you know it's very mechanized again homogeneous environment that works right it is extremely efficient um it may not be doing the nice nicest things to the cattle to the land to a whole bunch of other things but it's very efficient um and so you know, that's the split grass fed, grass finished in beef is what you want to look for all the time or any ruminant, you know, bison, lamb, whatever you're trying to go for. If you're looking for that, it's always got to be grass finished.
0: Yeah. I think that's so interesting because it's really been just a mess of labeling in in beef. And honestly, I wasn't too sure about, like, I wasn't 100% confident in my knowledge of, of what it means to be conventional dairy versus grass fed dairy. And now, you know, that's why we told, you know, tell listeners you know, for beef, it has to say 100% grass fed or grass fed, grass finished. And then, yeah, I mean, you talk about the whole labeling mess, country of or, origin labeling. There's just so, oh, it's, so it's, many it's issues a there with, with <laughs> yeah. beef. So that's yeah. good to know about dairy because I, I wasn't familiar with the exact percentages. I assumed, you know, you can't really go over a certain threshold of grain or they'll literally blow up. But um, the other thing, you know, what, what I was getting at before is, you know what some places say on the label and they might not say grass fed but they'll say pasture raised you know and and that kind of goes back to you know how exactly do you achieve both of these things and what percentage of dairies might be grass fed but not really in pasture sure so
2: pasture raised is a is a you know what if it's true that's a a good and legitimate thing right it means so you know you have a spectrum of dairy, right You have like big confinement dairy cattle in a big what what's called a free stall, big building generally on concrete, somebody feeding them with a tractor, running down some alleyway, feeding a total mixed ration, which is all their hay, all their grain mixed up into one, cows just heads down, eating that ration all day, you know eat, poop, go get milked, sleep, repeat every day um then you have. Sort of what would be pasture raised where you have, you know, maybe a similar ration, but the farm utilizes pasture as portion of that ration for a lot of reasons. Right. Economically, it makes sense. You can get sort of not really free, but free protein and energy, which is how you make milk or meat um, by putting your cows outside. The cows spread the manure and the fertility in the field. You're not running a tractor. There's like a million really good reasons to do that. Cattle health in a pasture-raised system is certainly better. They have more longevity than in a pure confinement system. You know, the average age a cow leaves the dairy industry conventional, I think it's, it's like 1.9 lactations, which means she's almost four. You know, a cow has a calf at two, starts milking, has another calf, and doesn't generally make it to the end of that second lactation, which is about, you know, nine to 10 months. And that's where fast food beef comes from, right? Is that sort of never ending loop. So that's a four year old cow in a pasture, you know, a nice pasture raised system. You can have cattle that are eight, 10 years old, um, depending on the system. And that's what you would see sort of in a particular organic pasture raised where the cattle aren't as stressed because they're not like economically able to both, Push the cattle because they'll have a health breakdown. They can't fix, um, and they can't afford to feed that level of grain in organic because it's expensive. And so you'll see, you know, much older cattle. It's a way better system. Um, cattle are outside, and then, but in organic, the the requirement on the federal regs is 30% dry matter from pasture. So if you're buying an organic milk product, that means that that farmer has to obtain 30% of those pounds of feed when I've said, you know, a thousand pound cow eats 32 pounds of feed, dry feed, you know, if it's grass, it actually weighs 150 pounds because of all the water. But if you dried it, it's 30 pounds of feed. 30% of that has to come from pasture. So that is a federal law and they are inspected and measured and you have to go through the process of showing how much hay you fed. So it's a real thing. In certified grass fed for dairy in the programs that You know we and others operate under you have to achieve 60 percent dry matter from pasture so you can feed hay when they're not on pasture so in the northeast where maple hill is based is basically you have winter right um which is when you feed hay you feed stored pasture stored grass um and in other areas maybe in northern california they don't do that as much they still have slumps though where they need to feed Um, You know between cool and warm season or what have you there's there's always a time where someone's going to feed hay So that's totally allowed But you really have to obtain a lot of your feed from pasture Which by the way is the only way you can actually be a grass-fed dairy farmer repeatedly is to maximize That intake from pasture because if you're trying to do it if there wasn't that rule and you tried to do it by feeding hay or, you know, silage, you know, grass silage, you'd go break, broke in the process. So it's sort of a self-regulating system, but it is a, a rule within the programs we operate in.
0: I don't miss uh, Western New York and upstate New York winters. I'll tell you that. I went to Me neither. In
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah,
0: that's the, you get the brunt of it there. <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I mean, I'm, my family's from Michigan, so I don't miss any lake effect or any of that stuff. It's it's (laughs) gnarly. It is. (laughs) I see pictures. It's, it's not fun. But I think what's interesting too is, is like, I think the the percentages of like you were mentioning, the percentages of feed necessary to be labeled organic or certified organic. All that stuff is once you get it and like, it kind of makes sense. But like you were saying earlier, the general population has no idea about any of these things. And actually I think, Certified or not certified organic necessarily, but organic can often be like, or actually organic and pasture raised used together or separately, I think can be misleading to people. Cause like you'll go to the store and you'll see pasture raised meat, for example, but that doesn't necessarily mean grass fed and it it's totally probably not throws yeah. people for a curve. Totally. So totally. It's so it's a, it's a total mess. And then like we've talked about in other podcasts with uh Stefan Van Fleet, I think it was about the labeling of overseas meat. As yep. being labeled uh, U.S.-based by simply being processed in the U.S., yep. and so it's it's pretty interesting how many holes there are yes. to get labeling in. Um, it's and on grass-fed, it's
2: all- that's very re- relevant because eighty—I think it's eighty-six percent, maybe a little more—of most of the grass-fed that you see in the meat case in most retailers is non-domestic grass-fed coming from Australia, yeah. Uruguay, New Zealand, and. It's maybe grass-fed, but it's not the same system. It's not apples to apples in terms of if you're buying grass-fed from a domestic grass-fed program that's operating in the spirit of grass-fed, it's way more expensive to produce that and the price is higher, but the product is better. Um, And it's unfortunate that they have to compete like that because people don't know the difference as to where it's coming from or don't know how to discern the quality, but it's real. Um, there is a difference.
1: Yeah, no. And especially in, um, like, cause you can look at restaurant menus and stuff like that. And there'll be, uh, even Chipotle has like grass fed beef, but it's all imported from New Zealand or Australia, I believe. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's nothing as it seems. Um, Never take labels for verbatim is sort of like what I've kind of learned. Unless, unless you kind of get the terminology down. But I think yep. what would be interesting, and I don't think without any data on this exists, at least that I've seen. But we we were, I mentioned uh, Stefan Van Fleet, and we were talking about a previous podcast about the amino acid differences and actually the the phytochemical differences in meat from grass fed, completely grass fed sources compared to grain fed being ex- extremely high compared to to grain fed meat and it varying depending on the pasture it was raised on i'd assume it'd be similar for milk as well yeah stefan i know
2: stefan because we gave him a bunch of vip coupons for his study to serve the same you know the people maple hill milk and they did do testing on it and it is markedly different we'd always done um uh omega testing and all that legend of omega 3 to 6 is real there's a lot of pretty a decent amount of variability but it is much tighter um in uh grass fed than it is in pasture raised or conventional cuz we tested them all for our own knowledge there is you know nutrient density is a really a thing and in dairy a lot of it comes from you know the volume of milk a particular cow is making in the system it's in and so in a you know typical conventional grain fed herd non-organic they might be making you know 90 pounds of milk per day um a grain fed organic cow might make 50 pounds per day and a grass fed uh cow if she's really rocking is making 35 and so the mineral content and a bunch of other things in our you know in the in the samples we've done over the years is markedly different um on a lot of fronts because a lot of because of that and then when you get into what happens to soil when you're grazing properly and it's alive and has bacteria and fungus that are processing the minerals that are taken up by the grass that's eaten by the cow that goes into the milk you can even drive it further um but even just on a matter of volume, it happens. And then the soil, like that, that obviously has an impact on everything and vegetables, meat, milk, et cetera.
0: That's uh that's fascinating, right? Cause it's almost like, yeah, it's, I mean, when we talked to Stefan too, he was saying like, you know, like a blueberry, for example, just cause it's twice the size doesn't mean it has twice the nutrients. Probably doesn't. Kind of, <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't. It definitely doesn't probably, but you know, it's, that's interesting from the milk perspective as well. So Again, it all comes back to something we talk about a lot. It's like, you know, you should, you know, go into the supermarket as a consumer and and have this in the back of your mind that, you know, what is the dollar per nutrient? Yeah, Maple Hill or a higher quality dairy might cost 50% more. There's a high chance of probably getting 50% more nutrients, right? And then, again, what you're saying from the soil and overall, a healthier animal. So. Totally. There's just some things that logically make a lot of sense, but they're hard to quantify, you know, and that's why his research is so cool, because it's kind of the first steps of like getting actual quantifiable data. And even then, it's hard to, you know, put that all in, you know, a sentence to convince people. And, you know, we're talking about labeling, you know, you're saying 60%, you know, pasture race, like, you know, there's only so much you can put on a label and we know the standard FDA nutrition label is a joke and people don't even know how to read anything aside from macros, um, and calories, but this is what's so important about, about spreading this message, I should say. So one thing I'm curious about as well, you know, it sounds like you, you had your own farm and then more so Maple Hill took form as kind of, you're working with a lot of high quality farmers, dairy farmers, um, were they already grass-fed or did you kind of convert them? And how did you go about doing that?
2: There were probably three or four farms that I had made connections with in New York that were grass-fed for some reason. They were just the same level of crazy that we were for whatever reason, right? Um, and so we started with a nucleus of two, ours and um, another couple uh, Paul and Phyllis van Amberg, their farmers called Dharma Lee and they were the first ones to join us and we sort of went forward from there and by trying to you know l- learn how we should be doing it and then sharing that with other farmers and providing a market that was significantly better price between those two things and lifestyle you know when it starts to work can be you know much better um we just started to attract you know more farms and and really created the first um grass-fed milk market there was there was no segregated you know milk supply anywhere um and so we started with ourselves and then two and then 12 and then 30 and then you know now there's 140 that ship to maple hill there's hundreds more that ship to Organic Valley and Horizon and other markets, you know, on the West Coast. So now it's a thing. But back then, that there was no real
0: grass-fed dairy to speak of, you know. Is is that all still in the Northeast for Maple Hill and in yeah, upstate New York? Yeah, all, Newark all Newark? in
2: upstate New York. Yeah, we, we wow. our farms are all in upstate New York, you know, sort of central New York is where we started, Cooperstown and sort of a new, nu- that was the nucleus and worked out from there. Um, and then, you know, the other markets are the other, um, brands, you know, have supply in the Northwest and Midwest and everything, but there's a pretty high density of grass fed in New York in general, because that's where we started and it attracted other farmers and other markets too. So Northeast probably has the most, New York absolutely has the most grass fed, hundred percent grass fed milk in the United States, probably in the world, actually, um, maybe other than New Zealand um but uh it's really become sort of it's it's the best place honestly to make grass-fed milk is um, the northeast even though we do have winter um it actually is serves the you know the system in many ways um and the fact that we have cool summers and grow grass that's rocket fuel is what dairy needs that's why dairy historically did live in the sort of new england northeast upper midwest wisconsin those climates are where dairy cattle should be and you know southeast and other places just in sort of the early agricultural system that's where you did cat you know beef cattle or sheep or goats and that's really a function of soil climate and the feed quality that comes from it. And even bison, you know, I've just learned last week how, uh, and we were talking about this relative to sort of the beef supply footprint and why it looks like it, why it has to look like it does is before the advent of trucks and trains, beef still ranged. The range of beef was continental for a lot of reasons, right? They would gather them in, in Fort Worth and Dallas and drive them all the way to Chicago. Before that, the range of the bison was literally continental because it needed to be, because they needed to do different things at different times of the year. And I, I've been studying um, longleaf pine. I have a thing I'm interested in, longleaf, which used to be sort of a savanna in the southeast all the way out to Texas. And I didn't realize that the bison would actually range down into Louisiana um, in the southeast to graze under the shade of these trees in particular times of year. And then, you know, be in other areas when they're basically making milk for their calves, right? They were following sort of the natural feed system and and it it kind of we got away with that. You know, we've got dairy cows in Florida and all of that, and we overcome it with systems and infrastructure, but when you just step back and look at like what animals should be eating what thing, dairy belongs in the northern latitudes where there's cool summer and beautiful grass um and so you know even though there's winter it's the right place everybody always thinks why why aren't you in georgia or whatever and it's like you ever been there in july no no green grass there <laughs> unless you're irrigating you know
0: yeah it sounds like cool and wet is a good combination it is, more, uh, it is for, for dairy dairy but that that's such a great way to encapsulate like you know how ruminants should be interacting with forage Because people often forget that, yeah, the cattle drives used to go, you know, hundreds of miles and, you know, it's pretty cool. But what happened as a result of that is they're grazing these massive swaths of land, but then they might not come back there for a year or two years. I mean, the bison sometimes left, you know, areas and and didn't come back for for multiple years during that, you know, grazing period is very tight. And, you know, a blade of grass is pretty much not left unturned, especially when predators are around. And I know the cattle drive horsemen tried to emulate that. Maybe they did a okay, decent job. But my question is then to you, you know, how do you best and how does Maple Hill best emulate nature in, in the environments that you have? I mean, that's basically the premise
2: of grass fed it should be the premise of grass-fed beef unfortunately it's not always but in grass-fed dairy because you have to be you like i said you will not be repeatedly a grass-fed dairyman every year if you don't learn how to graze um and so we replicate that natural system on a farm so like in that old system you had the herd and you had you know herd Behavior bunching, protection, right? because there were predators on the landscape that kept them together um, and they moved. they moved from one place to another. They didn't actually graze the grass down to the ground. they would actually do as much mashing and and manuring and laying on the grass as they did eating. And because they did all that, they couldn't graze it to the ground. who wants to eat your own you know your own manure? And so they would move right? So we replicate that. To do this well, you replicate that on the farm and electric fences are the predators that you use to keep the herd tight. And you expand and contract the size of the land area that those cows are on, depending on the time of year, speed of grass growth, moisture level, et cetera. That's where I, where I was saying earlier, it's a very, it's a nonlinear system, right? Like, oh, today it's, it's May, the grass is growing like crazy. We've had a lot of rain. I need to move them fast and stay ahead of this grass because the job of the ruminant, the job of the grass-fed dairy farmer or beef person is to prevent that grass as much as possible from going to a seed head and fully expressing itself. You're trying to keep it in this vegetative state, which you do by clipping it. With cattle, right? And so it's growing, 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 clip it. And then it's got to start over, throw up new leaves, and try to go for a seed head again. That's what the best feed is. And so we use cattle and fencing and time, you know, intervals and movement to replicate that natural order that the bison and other ruminants on every continent on the face of the earth have always played that role. We just replicate it on a smaller scale.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, actually, what I was exactly going to say when you were talking about the 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 different uh, natural ruminants like bison spreading across the land, and Tristan mentioning that they not return to the same pieces of land over periods of years, and we've sort of disrupted that entire climate based on our you know modern cultural practice that we developed over the last hundred fifty years or so of of advent of agriculture and boxing things in and changing the environment up and having them overgraze on certain lands or not grazing on other lands that are monocropped and then not replenishing the soil. Now we're in this conundrum of soil depletion of nutrients that's going to be massive in the next couple decades. And so it's sort of like, we talk a lot about regenerative ag on the show. We've interviewed some people talking about it, Brian Sanders, uh, Mitch, who's a regenerative farmer. Um, And it's really interesting to hear um, there, I mean, it's all about emulating nature at the end of the day and how we can best do that. And you kind of just laid into that a little bit, but I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts, um, from a dairy perspective on regenerative ag and if there's a place for it and like how, what that looks like to you and sort of practices that. Sure. you
2: implement. It looks like Maple Hill. I mean, we were regenerative because we had to, before it was a word related to all this stuff. You know, I mean, it's like literally baked into the system. You can't, do it well if you're not regenerative and regenerative means the cycle puts back and you're constantly improving and growing and moving forward, which there is an interesting, this is the, this is the Bitcoin intersection actually. Um, And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't actually get to Bitcoin from this angle. It's more looking back and realizing. So I do a lot of work in regenerative outside of Maple Hill and other companies and projects. There's an idea that if you look at nature in its its native state, that it returns 13%. That's the number that people bandy about in sort of like the natural capital world. Uh, It returns 13% to the system, uses like 9%, and there's always four sort of going into savings, right? And so that's how we speak as a farmer who, when we're, When we're talking about grass fed or like why it matters to put fertility and carbon in the soil is because that is your basically your savings account as a farmer, because you're going to have good years and you're going to have bad years. Right. You're going to have dry years. And if you have a, a bank of fertility there that also ends up being a bank of water holding capacity, a bank of other things, you have ecological savings. Right. But if you have a money supply, this is the way I think about it you can't have regenerative agriculture with a degrading money supply like it's we can try and we are giving it our best but it it can't work because if nature returns 4% to the land for you to use or store and your dollars or your euros or your whatever's are eroding at 4% or greater by definition you have to use an input some form of energy or a derivative of energy like synthetic fertility from fossil fuels whatever it is right to move that natural system at a rate that is faster than nature can do by itself and so what that does and what that's done over time because the bottom is constantly falling out from under the system, everybody in it is always trying to go faster and get larger to outrun that dragon. And you can't outrun it. That's where we are. And that's why Bitcoin and regenerative ag, like literally are like opposite sides of the same coin. In the long run, if we don't fix the money supply, Regenerative ag is a grindstone that lots of farmers are going to get ground up by. And that's unfortunately the sad fact of a lot of regenerative ag is people, a lot of well-meaning, really awesome farmers and ranchers doing it and basically getting ground up and spit out financially because you're, you're on quicksand, right? And you need... If it's putting 4% back, but you started with basically an ecological debt, which is real, like when, when someone is, is starting to be a Maple Hill grass-fed farm, and let's say they, they're doing it on what was former corn ground or something, 40 years of growing corn on that ground is literally a form of mining. You're mining the soil, and you have an, a debt to the soil that you've got to pay Before you can actually go forward right and so you're trying to be regenerative in a system that is financially monetarily like killing itself that 4% you need 15 years of that to fill in the ecological debt before what we we just say it starts to click right the biology the chemistry the physics the animals, the management, the gray matter between the farmers, you know, ears all starts to work and the flywheel gets faster and faster and faster. You've overcome that inertia. The inertia comes from the fact that the money supply has gone out from under producers and everybody, obviously, for 60 years, you know, 100 years. So that, that's where they intersect, like no doubt in my mind.
0: Yeah. I love it. That got me fired up. I think it's a beautiful way to paint this picture. Um, The way I I often paint it is pretty much in a similar way that, you know, this, you know, devaluation of the currency can only be continued to be propped up by more economic growth, which means, you know, higher uh, prioritization on efficiency output and, you know, just streamlining everything. So then you result in just this massive increase of centralization you know, buying up the smaller entities, whatever industry productization, you get all this lab grown plant based, you know, factory made stuff because you can just make it more efficient and make the process output more for the same. And that's what we see. That's where we are right now. Um, but we do have, yeah, this solution or at least something of inherent value, um, program scarcity in Bitcoin to fight back with, which is fascinating and i'm curious to see how we can continue to grow that exchange and you know we like to say value for value you know saying if you were in my local area paying for my high quality milk and cream products with bitcoin and kind of keeping that uh, and accelerating that trend to where then your four percent in savings or, or whatever is in something that will appreciate not depreciate. And then you might even be able to get ahead of this, you know, inertia that you're talking about. Right. And what, what I wanted to ask you about is, you know, how, how do we get to that or how do we save, you know, some of these folks, you're talking about a lot of these folks that are doing it the right way, and they're still going to end up being underwater because of the monetary system being broken. And, you know, what Ryan was kind of getting at, um, I think was, you know, some of these regenerative, you know, certification standards. I don't know if Maple Hill has one, but they're popping up. I think it's the new organic, right? You see restorative on like Vital Farms eggs. They charge $10 a dozen now. It's it's insanity. Uh, I haven't really done a deep dive on what that means. Um, And then we also are talking now about like carbon credits and this whole ESG movement, which potentially, I mean, it's very questionable. Of course, everything, I'm probably not a huge fan of it, but it is opening up some you know other avenues for people doing regenerative practices to potentially make more income right to negative or to balance out the the emissions for for large companies (laughs) well yeah i mean i unfortunately i think regenerative is the fastest um
2: greenwashed word that has ever come to be unfortunately right because there is no like it's different things to different people um myself which is you know, sort of ironic, like having, you know, being involved with Maple Hill, obviously, but my, where I really like to, to spend time thinking and, and actually, you know, helping people through, um, you know, there's some nonprofits I work with and things that are total Grass-Fed Alliance and the Good Meat Project and others that are focused on helping producers who are looking to de- direct market their product. So the pro most, if you just think about like, you know, the type of brain that is good at sales and marketing is probably very different than the type of brain that's good at raising pastured pork. Not saying they can't reside in the same head, but it's a different type of thinking and what makes somebody a really great dairy farmer or a great, you know, pastured poultry person. Some aspects of what makes you great at that makes you really bad at marketing and sales (laughs) Um, variability and changing messages, you know, like, it's it's very different, and so I think it's happening naturally, like I don't really i think the the solution is already occurring, which is the the food supply is bifurcating in many ways, it's becoming more centralized and more decentralized at the same time, which is normal. That's how things change, and that the farms that are truly regenerative because most times they have to be in order for it to work who then tell that story and sell their products directly to consumers and basically obtain more of, it's just math, obtain more of the margin and more sort of control over their destiny of their market can make it through. Still not easy. It's brutally difficult. I mean, you know, the, the... rural landscape is littered with people trying to do that but very often they they've tried to do it without having the tools or the mental model that you need to have to understand how you sell something or market something and i when talking to producers and things like that particularly in grass-fed beef my, the, i say it too much but i always tell them like you can't market a steak by first talking about dirt which is what most people do. They want to talk about their soil or their, you know, whatever. And it's like, I'm, I'm buying a steak here. I want to know, does it taste good? You know, is it tender? Does it look good? Right? Like start there and then you get the right, if after producing a good product to tell them about your regenerative practices, what you do to the soil your family, all those things, right? It's it's part of the story, but you've got to like meet them where they are. And most people aren't really thinking about dirt when they're looking at steak, right? And so it's just an easy way to think about like that You you have to use a different set of tools to be successful. But I think those that do that in whatever way is right for their own context, like, you know, is it farmer's market? Is it a farm pickup? Is it, a subscription whatever it is it doesn't matter like um but getting closer to the consumer and the consumer that wants to be closer to their food gives both uh, its value for value right you're solving that person the consumer the person who wants to know their food feel secure in it eyeball to eyeball know where their food is coming from is getting a value from you know transacting with this farmer or rancher who's also getting more value because they're holding on to more of their dollars um, from the consumer. And the consumer may be spending the same amount, right? Like when you look at an item on the shelf of a retailer, you can pretty much just divide it by two. So if something is on the shelf for 10 bucks, the person who made that, whatever it is, sold it for five. And in between there is freight, distributor, and retailer. A lot of people go off on like, that's not fair, the retail share of the dollar. And it's like, I don't even know what that, I, I, it's like a, a rabbit hole that goes nowhere. It's like, well, what, who says what is the right share of the retail dollar? It's like, it's just the way it works. It's math, right? The consumer won't spend more than X on this product. Therefore, you get Y, right? But it's just to to show that how many dollars are in between when it left my hand and when you took it off the shelf, there's $5 there. If you could just get three of them by selling it direct it's a game changer right and so that's how you change the trajectory of the farm um it's not an easy way but that is a way where it's really hard is when you're doing it within the commodity system you know trying to do it regeneratively and again not saying it can't be done people are doing it every day people doing it at maple hill right but it's just hard like there's just not enough to go around Um, we can't pay the price we'd like, we know we need to pay, we pay the highest price there is for milk. And it's still really not enough, um, particularly for people who are just transitioning because of that ecological debt that they've got to pay, which they pay in the form of minerals they need to put on their land, cattle that don't work out that they need to replace, all of those things are real, right? And so going direct and decentralized, like, Personally, I like decentralized everything, um, but in food, most of all, it's the most important thing happening. And it's a great, again, a great intersection with Bitcoin. That's like peer to peer, like, you know, eyeball to eyeball. That's where it should live. That's where it should be, right? Um, and I, it's happening. Like, it just never happens as fast as we'd all like. Like, the timescale is always longer than we'd like, <laughs> for sure, but it's happening pretty fast. Like COVID actually was a, a blessing on that front. It really accelerated that, and I don't think that genie's going back in the bottle.
1: No, I mean certainly not. I think you said a lot of good stuff there. I mean, I mean, we're all about decentralization here, but I think one thing you mentioned that was really important, and we had this discussion. I think at least once a podcast is the 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 skill of communication to those that you have not yet reached because obviously there are people listening to this that are kind of all, you know, to an extent in the know, or maybe even more in the know than me. And, um, it's really about reaching the, the quote, silent masses that have no idea. And it's about, like you mentioned, I think that was a great analogy used about marketing the steak. If you're trying to market it as regenerative, like you don't start by talking about the dirt, which, you know, is important. And I will nerd out on that, but not my, my brother's not going to nerd out on that. immediately anyways, you really got to meet them. Like you said, where they are. And that's, sort of with everything that's like with Bitcoin, um, that's with any of these sort of uh, practices or things that we're talking about. I think it's also, it's a big mistake that you mentioned that I think a lot of people make, at least initially, sometimes they never get out of it and that kind of runs them into a hole. But the other game too is like you said, time. I think one aspect of it is, at least from a consumer standpoint, is we're so used to the modern convenience of now and having everything now Going to the store and getting something that doesn't grow here locally from, but it's from Mexico or or somewhere extremely far away like right now. And it's sort of kind of removing that noise and like going back to your local environment to an extent. And that's difficult for I think a lot of people to take in. But I totally. think the benefits long term are what's going to outweigh the short inconvenience that is is now. And I often frame it this way with health when I talk about listen, like you can buy cheaper packaged non-nutrient dense foods. But when we buy with, when we, when we focus on buying for nutrient density, like you may be, I guess, spending more money, but you're also getting a huge bang for that buck versus spending less money and then having to pay extremely high medical bills, which I've had later in your life. And that, I mean, I was listening to medical debt is one of the biggest things for the average American right now that runs people into bankruptcy. It's insane. And the solutions that I think they put out there, I mean, are nice. And I think like theoretically, the idea is like whatever, they could work in a system that I don't want to live in. But it's really about how can we get that message of health and sort of like bring that personal responsibility back onto that individual, I think is is really the key. And so it's all about education. The more, you know, the more likely you're to make better decisions for yourself, the better health is going to be, the better your local economy is going to be, the environment and all these things sort of coupled together, you know? Yep.
2: It doesn't even need to be the masses. Like, that's the thing is like, I don't even think it's never going to be the masses. No, it's the edge. And you just need to find the next edge as someone who's trying to be a regenerative farmer and, and like meet the edge where it is and then that will change and and that's how things change right it, to imagine you know if if just 5% of the population makes a change like that from a system standpoint that's like system breakdown if you really want to know the truth right if you if 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 a big food company loses 5% share on a particular category it's like hair on fire burn down the building like what are we going to do and that's already happening like that is happening so it's it's just that next edge of consumers that are ready, because they're a lot easier to, you know, to convert the masses is hard and expensive. And like, there's always somebody waiting, like learning for whatever reason, whether it's health, you know, health the healthcare system and the costs there are basically externalized food system costs, right? You just move it from one side of the system, the food, the food system is the other side of the healthcare system, you know, costs. It, it comes in ex it absolutely comes from there. Um, and there's all, and that's usually the on-ramp for people is actually a health, a health issue. There's two on-ramps, kids and health, right? You have a health scare or you have kids and that's, that's the gateway for organic milk. Like absolutely for a fact, kids organic milk is now in the house. So there's opportunities in both of those scenarios to help people solve that problem. And, and like again, meet them where they are if they're worried about their health, like eating the other thing is 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 I think we get too crazy, I call it eating by spreadsheet, like where you're like you know all the like I tried keto, and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't, I cannot do this. It's like eat directionally for yourself because we're all individuals too, right, and people get it's overwhelming like to think about all the confusion um and for producers as well, that's why I say, go for the edge like." If you always are looking at like, oh, I got to, you know, we need all, why don't they all, you know, 50% of the population, it's like, you're never going to attack anything if you're waiting for that. Just do the next right step, right? And little bites and it will change. And that's what's happening all over the place from a decentralized standpoint, whether it's monetary, even medical, right? That's changing before our eyes in in terms of people creating their own systems and their own networks and all of that. So it's amazing the confusing stressful time to be living. I'll say that like for the last three years, my gosh, it's been just, I'm over it. I just want like, all right, let the other shoe drop. Let's go for it. You know, because <laughs> I'm tired, but it's changing. <laughs> at least there's positive.
0: It's accelerating, which is frightening and exciting at the same time, at least for totally. me personally. And totally. I think we're seeing that here, 2023 with some, some bank crises. Um, but, you know, I want to I frame a scenario for you. You know, you're all about decentralization, right? Mabel Hill has, you know, been very successful and it's like you almost have these like nodes of, you know, farmers in upstate New York that are all very high quality, but you're still, you know, bringing, to, bringing them to the consumers that value this quality product via, you know, kind of a standard centralized approach of, of retail, of Whole Foods, and you know that is what it is. It's great that you have this product out there; sure. it's a fantastic option. But how do you work to? And I know you're not in the day to day anymore, but theoretically, how how do we get to a point where maybe we don't need these large retail stores, and you can actually implement a more you know direct to consumer? Obviously, the marketing aspect is is big, but um, how do we get there to close that gap? Because the ideal situation is, you know, all these local farmers just have it within their own community, but maybe not everybody in that community values, you know, grass fed milk, for example. And then how do we work Bitcoin into that aspect in exchanging value for value even further? And then, you know, tying in my last selfish question is when you become so decentralized, then. Can you not be at the whims as much of a USDA and, say, have unpasteurized products? And what what do you think about that in general? And yeah, how do we close this gap to where it's even more hyperlocal and decentralized direct to consumer? And theoretically, how do we get to a point where it's kind of even more redundant than what it is right now?
2: Well, I mean, I think it, a lot depends where you live, right? Um, you know, yes. in certain areas of the country, that's already happened, you know, and like Northeast Pennsylvania with the Amish community, there's, you know, Delaware, Maryland, there's a lot of like buying clubs and things like that. And that's accelerating, but it's not everywhere. I just think, you know, being a consumer or being a Bitcoiner and going through the trouble To find, you know, I have a bookmark on my browser that's like local food. When I find an app that helps me find local food or a local vendor or whatever, I, like, mark it down so that I can seek them out and slowly shift my consumption to more, you know, person to person. Um, And I think the more people do that, again, it's gradual. Like, I, I think focusing on you know smaller so as i like it's when you want things to be decentralized it's often like you start thinking about big ways to create decentralization which is if you think about it like exactly the opposite of how decentralization occurs like i do the same thing right it's like no it's not a big thing it's your small things and the seeds that you plant, even doing stuff like this podcast, right? You're planting seeds. And so it's like repetition, repetition, you do it. You, you try to foster that, create the conditions for other people to do that. And that's how it happens. And like, that's how economics and free market economics work. There's trillions of decisions being made today or yesterday that are extremely different than the same people making the same types of decisions three years ago. And they are making them in a more decentralized fashion, not all of them. And I don't even care if it's all of them because it's like a, you know, it doesn't matter. You don't need all of them for the whole system to change. You just need the edge and that's already happening. So I kind of like have come around to like focusing on the smallest, beautiful thing and yeah i mean i'm very proud of maple hill i love maple hill i love the farms i love the product and it's you know changed the world in many ways in its own little way there's grass fed dairy everywhere it's beautiful it's great and at the same time i also love small farms doing things direct figuring it out innovating like it's all it's all innovation right like how do you crack the code in your for your farm How do you do it in your context? You know, like who are the people that a lot of people live in very rural areas and there's not a market, but, you know, and some of them I've talked to, to try to help. It's like, start pushing on stuff. Well, it's a rural environment with, with parks and people come and stay in Airbnbs. It's like, well, those people have money and they're there on a special occasion. Maybe they'll buy your pastured poultry and they do. Right. And it's like little bit everywhere little changes add up to massive sh- shifts it's just you can't see it that's also the nature of it like everything that i'm talking about it doesn't show up really in the data right like particularly in the food system the like most people don't know it but like maple hill or any brand can go buy syndicated data and we do of every product in our category or any category whether it's dairy or beef or whatever. And Nielsen, the same people who do the TV stuff, and other companies called Spins and that, keep track of every scan in Whole Foods, what products going across that scanner, and then it's reported monthly. And you can see trends in the data, right? People are buying more whole milk, less skim, whatever. The nature of what we're all talking about here with decentralization is, By definition, it doesn't really show up directly in the data. It's like you have to read between the lines with your gut and your intuition and sort of like which way is the wind blowing. And and that's a very human, non-scientific thing. But just in my own life, doing that and sort of trying to read between the lines. And my wife is sort of on the opposite spectrum. She's sort of like freaked out. Where the world is going is like what is going on, and I'm kind of like, I I know it's crazy, it absolutely is, but I also know there's things changing for the better. At the same time, there's like tentacles and it's like mycelium, right? the The fungus is always under the dirt, you don't see it, but there's billions of miles in it in one patch of woods, growing and digesting the old and creating the new, and that's what's hap- That's what decentralization does. And you can't quantify it easily. You can't point to it all the time. But if you just look at it through that prism of observing, how am I making decisions? How are people in my family making decisions? Other people, like, is there a shift, a small shift? And in the aggregate, a small shift across a small group of people is major, right? Um, But you get discouraged because the people who aren't awake, who aren't seeing it, always are more visible than the quiet ones who are right like that's just the nature of it but i'm i'm actually like simultaneously freaked out and extremely optimistic (laughs) about where things are going you know
0: yeah i think we share a lot of the same perspectives because it's it's you know a unnerving time that we're in but you know with the knowledge personally that we have and a lot of our listeners have, it's uh, somewhat exciting, but it comes back down. And obviously that's you know somewhat of a rhetorical question I asked. Um, we know the answer is not, there's no black and white, but it comes back to something we talk a lot about on this show. And it's that the consumer purchasing dollar is probably the most impactful thing you can Do As an individual that you can control and change and dictate in your environment, in your local economy. And then that scales to, you know, nationwide, worldwide trends that you're talking about. And yeah, it doesn't, it's not this massive shift, all of a sudden, it's, you know, these small decisions, and they add up. And, you know, there is a hierarchy, right? It's like, you know, you're here, you're growing your own food. There's no data. Yeah, no one's tracking that. And then it's like, all right, you're buying local from a high quality food producer. That is awesome. There might also be no data there, especially None. you know if you're going peer to peer, and and that's where especially if you're just going cash or or Bitcoin, for example, no one's tracking this. And then third, it's like you know you're at Whole Foods buying Maple Hill, still really high quality, and even that decision is shifting. Um, you know consumer trends. Whole Foods is going to carry more, more people are going to buy it. It's, it's, you know, you guys grew and have now more prominent footprint in the market. You have more mind space compared to just big dairy who's doing whatever the same shit they're usually doing and not creating any change in the world. But that, and that's what we talk about is food, right? You want to be more decentralized. Where can you have the biggest impact? It's food, your car, where's your car made, you know, your laptop, we're podcasting on this, you know, anything, your phone, you're not going to move the needle in any of these industries because they're too centralized and something you buy the most often, probably besides gas is food or more than gas, obviously because you need to eat it yep. every day. It depends how often yep. you're shopping. So that's where you can move the needle the most. And you need to just have that conscious voice in your head when you go to the supermarket or you go to the farmer's market, or you know, you're deciding if you want to try and take a leap of faith and, and homestead. But to us, that's, you know, what it's all about. We've talked about on a few shows and I think that personally can move the needle the most in in any one person's life to become more decentralized. And then simultaneously, it's improving your health, right? Absolutely. Higher quality foods. And then that's, you know, you're outside the healthcare system, which is, who. that's a one system you do not want to be called. Absolutely.
2: yep. I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and you can buy actually, you literally can, I, I've experienced it, you know, in going carnivore, you know, the last few months and sort of in, in and out a bit, I've I've gotten more flexible, but I was just doing the math. I'm like, it's, it would seem unaffordable, but it's actually, you just, you, you buy better stuff, more dense things and eat less of it. Right and you feel better and you're healthier. Now, not, not everybody has to go carnivore, but it's the same thing. Like the food on the shelf is hollowed out for the same monetary reason that agriculture is hollowed out because they had to. They had to take cost out to maintain a margin to maintain the company because the money system is coming out from under them. And so that cheap hollow food, you eat a lot more of it, right? Because it's hollow, you know, so you're absolutely right. Food is all that matters. Like if you just focus on changing your behavior there, it's going to change the world and yourself for the better. It's truly win-win. It's actually win-win-win, right? the, The world will be better. The farm, the people producing the food will be better and you will be better.
1: Yeah. And I think once people realize like that's, I mean, it's as simple as that really. And once, once people realize that, I think they can make some big moves for, for themselves on like a monetary and also just a like yep. a health basis. And, and that's what you were just saying exactly was like when you go to buy food and then you eat nutrient dense, like you're doing right now in carnivore or, wh- or whatever your diet is, we're kind of animal based, but whatever you're doing, it's, you're actually eating less, you're getting more nutrition, your cravings are down. So you're actually it kind of balances out and I just don't, don't, people just don't realize that. I mean, if you went to your pantry right now, maybe not us, but like average American go to your pantry, count how much of that has any nutrient density. It's almost zero. And I've like yep. whole pantries of just wasted stuff. So it's pretty amazing.
2: And it's zero for actually a very high cost per pound. That's the, that's the, like when you start doing it, like weigh your chips and on a per pound basis or anything like that is like, you're worried about buying a steak, and yeah. the amount that you're paying for this hollowed out carb, you know, sugar crap is yep. is really astronomical. Never mind the healthcare costs.
1: Yeah, no joke.
0: Yeah, so so one thing, maybe the last topic I want to get into. I kind of briefly mentioned it um, before we wrap up talking to a dairy guy. Is you know, yeah, raw milk, unpasteurized milk. Oh, sure. The legislation around it, because to me, it seems like. The whole pasteurization process, you know, was created and it allowed for milk to be scaled to a level that's sort of unnatural or would never have occurred and never could occur if it was just kept, you know, unpasteurized. And you know, there's a lot of misinformation in the general public around unpasteurized milk. And, you know, there's pathogens, bacteria, there's high risk for consumption. I think Ryan and I, you know, both know that. You know, if you have a high quality operation that there's absolutely nothing to be afraid of, especially if you can verify the quality and you know the local source. But really, the unpasteurized milk that's intended to be pasteurized from big dairy is really where the scary raw milk is. And uh, that's where I think most of the, you know, data comes from. But I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts on this? There's more momentum in this space. And will having more freedom with raw milk enable more decentralization in this industry and kind of take back some of the market share from big dairy you think um I mean it's it's already
2: happening like you say um, and it's it's all context right when they when when they went down the pasteurized route, there were good reasons like people were doing raw milk, producing raw milk in a way that it shouldn't have been produced, but historically, raw milk as anyone who's sort of gone down the rabbit hole was prescribed by doctors there was raw milk that was produced specifically for hospitals it wasn't produced in some slipshod shot banner it was like ultra clean milking facilities everything was meticulous like there was actual scale for the time within the raw milk system and you know who knows why i'm sure there was some Protectionist aspects to it from the dairy industry, as there always is from any industry. Uh, way back when it happened, but there were legitimate problems. Um, but I, you know, I'm a freedom absolutist, so I just think. Well, and it's also weird how things live in different buckets in our head. Like, okay, so we're pretty sure and know to be true that you know, drinking a lot of vodka is probably not like on the high list from a health standpoint that's not like building up anything but i'm allowed to do that but i'm not allowed to do this thing over here right or i'm allowed to smoke cigarettes or i'm allowed whatever idiotic you know whatever you want to do i literally don't care but like if we're allowed to do those stupid things which we're obviously allowed to do because there's tax revenue involved why can't we do this other stupid thing you think is stupid i just i'm not like, I don't get it. I never will get it. Um, I understand why it's there. You know, the, the States with the biggest dairy industry are usually the ones with the harshest crackdowns on raw milk. That's no coincidence. Um, but eventually, you know, like the, you rightly pointed out and it's especially so the American consumer, I've always said the American consumer is, is the most powerful force on earth if they turn their attention to something. And, you know, whether that's iPhones or whatever, those dollars, as you described, moving, that's monetary energy, right? Moving monetary energy in a particular direction, it's like water, it will find a path. It will find a path, whether it's above board, below board, middle board, whatever, that's happening. People are buying milk for their pets. They're like, it's leaking out all over the place and eventually the regulatory bodies just give up because they don't have enough bandwidth to deal with it. And somewhere, you know, then the game theory of raw milk takes place. It's like, wait, we're missing out on revenue. Let's, you know, let's, let's embrace it. Like, ironically, California, the most regulated place on the face of the earth, allows raw milk in stores. And in that syndicated data, like, there's one brand that we can never, never beat. And it's a raw milk, um, you know, beautiful raw milk product that's only available in California. And they rise to the top of the syndicated data every time because they're getting $10 a half gallon, which goes to show you like that's some serious monetary energy that consumers are putting behind that, you know. Um, so it's going to work itself out. And I'm all for people eating or doing you know, within reason, uh, whatever they feel is right for themselves, their health, their body, like that's my right as a person, uh, as an individual. And if someone wants to drink raw milk and our own farm, obviously, like we didn't go buy the store, that milk at the store, we took the milk out of the tank and raised our kids on it and, you know, miss it. Like that's an awesome part of being a dairy farmer. Um, and I think people that want the opportunity to do that should have the opportunity to buy eyeball to eyeball from any farmer they feel safe drinking from. And you can get sick. Absolutely. Like anything, get sick from tomatoes, ground beef, you know, whatever. Um, you want to buy raw milk from a, a place that strikes you as clean and meticulous and careful and like, but that's your, that's up to you to decide, um, if that's the right thing for you or not. And, you know, I think people should have that right.
0: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic way to put it. I think the momentum there also, yeah, it's kind of just going to continue, which is exciting. Um, And yeah, it's a testament as well, you know, the saying to to Maple Hill and that's what, you know, you raise your family on. And it's clear that that you have done the due diligence to really, I mean, it's it's quite a fantastic story that you kind of pioneered the the grass-fed dairy space that we have now. And to be honest, I still think it's pretty, pretty sparse, you know, it's, it's growing, but compared to like meat and other things, you know, the, the options are still very limited. So I think it's awesome that we know that there's a brand out there that is doing it right. Because I mean, we're, we're lucky here in in, in Salt Lake and Utah, that there's a local um, raw milk supplier and I have goat's milk in, in Wyoming where I live, but a lot of people always ask me and they're like, oh, well, what do you recommend? Or, you know, what's a good option? Who's your dealer? Option? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who's your milk plug? Um, but worst case, you know, it's, it's nice that there's options out there now that in case you can't support locally, you know, that there's a high quality grass fed, pasture regenerative, whatever you want to call it, um, just high quality operation. So um, thank you for providing that.
2: <laughs> it's still a rounding error on the dairy and it, you know, there's so much room to grow and hopefully more people pick up on it is the fastest, the grass fed is the fastest portion of the dairy case in terms of growth. So that's a reason to be optimistic. People are waking up and, you know, mm-hmm. and buying more of it. So same with fed beef, you know, supporting that as well.
0: Inherently, yeah. I, I wanted to say that earlier or ask you if it was still a rounding error. So that's that's funny that it's a rounding um, it error is.
2: relative to big I mean, dairy is so huge. Uh
0: I can't even imagine. But yeah, I mean, and that goes to show and, and you encapsulate everything so well, you know, the connection between the monetary system and, and agriculture, it's so true. And really your frame of mind on these topics is 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 fantastic. I mean, it's the, the embodiment of like decentralization. And I think if people start, you know, thinking more about nutrient per dollar and and valuing that local approach, then we're going to have even more momentum in in this fight. So, so Tim, thanks a bunch for coming on. Um, Tim, it's been a pleasure. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Decentralized Radio. Have a good one.